Why don't you open up uh, the Bible, your Bible to the book of Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. We'll get there in just a minute. <clears throat> Revelation 2. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We're going to have the scriptures behind me on the screen. My name is Matt Carter, lead pastor here at Sagemont Church. We're continuing through a series that we're calling Generations. And last week we talked about the call on our lives, excuse me, the call on our lives to be individual people, individual Christians that finish our race well. Now, I want to talk about today, I want to talk about the calling on our lives to be a church that finishes well. Now, here's what I mean by that, by a church finishing well. You know, when you look at churches over the last 2,000 years of Christian history, there are countless stories of God placing his hand of blessing and moving in power in churches for one generation. Lots of stories. We could talk about it all day of church moving in power, manifesting his presence and his blessing in a church for one generation. But there are, Sagemont, very, very few examples of churches that are powerfully used by God over multiple generations. They are incredibly, incredibly rare. Okay, as a matter of fact, there's a statistic that came out from Lifeway Research. It was several years ago. And it uh, was uh, a study that was done about um, legacy pastors. Let me tell you what a legacy pastor is. A legacy pastor would be the founding pastor of Sagemont, Dr. John Morgan. John Morgan founded this church, he planted this church a um, long time ago, and he pastored it faithfully for 52 years, and God blessed Sagemont radically. This church has done some amazing and remarkable things. He's a legacy pastor. Now, let me ask you a question. What percentage do you think that the study found of guys like me that follow legacy pastors? What percentage of guys like me follow legacy pastors actually make it and then see any measure of success that either meets or exceeds the legacy pastor. Don't shout it out, but get a percentage in your mind. What do you think that percentage is? It's 2%. 2% of guys like me that follow a successful legacy pastor actually make it more than two years. And then an even smaller percentage go beyond that and see a measure of success that meets or exceeds the original pastor in terms of spiritual success. And, um, and so when I got the call here at Sagemont and I was thinking about coming here and praying about coming here, I started calling a few of my pastor buddies and, um, and started telling them about it. And they were like, bro, are you nuts? Right? Have, have you, have you heard about the Lifeway study? Have you heard about the 2% thing? They're like, why in the world would you would you leave this church that you planted that's grown like crazy, thousands of people, multiple campuses, reaching University of Texas like nuts, have job security, why would you leave that to come to a place where you got a 2% chance of making it? That's a good question. Here's the answer. Number one, primary reason is I believe, actually I don't believe, I know. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God called me here. Here's the other reason. Is back then, as I began to look at this church, I saw its potential. I saw its potential in this city, 
to take and build upon the foundation that Pastor John and the original generation of this church and build on it and see God, maybe just maybe, do something exceedingly and abundantly more through us that he did up to this point. I believe we have that kind of potential here. I know we have that kind of potential here in this city. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. How do we do that? How do we keep from being that 2%? Or rather, how do you, the 98%. How do we become the 2%? And the question is, is if we're gonna see that happen, if we're gonna be the 2%, then we have to avoid the mistakes that the 98% of churches make that keep them from being the 2%. Sometimes those are hard choices. And the overwhelming majority of churches aren't willing to make those hard churches, uh, choices. As a matter of fact, when I first moved here, I met with the director of missions of our, um, there's an association we're part of here in Houston. And I just asked him to give me the layout of Houston and what it was like. And we began to have a conversation about how many churches here in Houston, even though we're still in the Bible Belt, have these massive buildings, you know, massive compared to the rest of the world, not like massive like Save Month, but just really big buildings that were once full of people, that were full of people, full of life. He said there's dozens of them, maybe even hundreds of them, big buildings, full of people, full of life, but now sit mostly empty. Maybe a handful of folks, gray hair that still are hanging on from the glory days and are keeping it on life support. And that's what today is all about. In the second week of our generation series, I wanna talk about why churches die. I'll talk about why churches die. I'll talk about why the overwhelming, when I say overwhelming, the overwhelming majority of churches throughout Christian history, regardless of how much success they have, at some point they, they see, um, they stop seeing God move, they stop growing, they plateau, they hang out there for a long time and they eventually decline and then eventually die. It happens far more times than not. And it's always been a tragedy to me. It's a tragedy that that's the overwhelming story in the majority of churches because Jesus said that he was gonna build his church. Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we are a part of a winning team. We're, we're a part of a team that's going to still be standing when every king and every kingdom and every organization has come and gone, the church will still be standing there. And so why in the world do so few churches that see God move in one generation and maybe two rarely see it over multiple generations? And how do we here at Sagemont Church be one of those rare exceptions? Well, I think one of the primary reasons that... Um, the overwhelming majority of churches die really does come down to one reason, and it's a spiritual reason. And it's this. I think the overwhelming majority of churches, the reason they die is because God removes his hand of blessing from their church. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, amen? And so if a church is growing, if a church is succeeding, if they're seeing salvations, if they're seeing life, if they're seeing fire, if the spirit of God and the presence of God are moving in church, that is a gift from God. And the reason that the overwhelming majority of churches dies is because God removes his hand of blessing and presence from a church. It's very biblical. But I want to show you in the Old Testament, don't turn there because we're going to look at Revelation 2 in a second, but we see this principle last week. 
In 2 Chronicles 26.5, in the life of King Uzziah, most sex, one of the most successful kings in Israel's history, 2 Chronicles 26.5, talking about Uzziah, and it says, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And then look at the last part there. It says, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now, there's an important phrase there that's key for us. It says, he set himself to seek after God. He set his way. He set his path. He says, God, I'm going after you. And the scripture tells us that as long as this young king, and he started when he was 16, as long as this young king set his heart to seek after God, God prospered him. He poured out his blessing on Uzziah's life, but something changed. Something happened in Uzziah's life. Something happened in his heart. Something changed in Uzziah's life, and we see it in 2 Chronicles 26, 15. This is after 10 verses of all the ways that God had blessed him, and, and we see what the change was. In verse 15, it says, In Jerusalem, he, that's Uzziah, made machines and then by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners, shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. That's what happened. Scripture says that Uzziah was marvelously helped by God until he became strong. And when he became strong, he became proud. And when he became proud, God removed his hand, a blessing from Uzziah's life. And Uzziah was never the same and his kingdom was never the same again. And you may, you may be like, well, Matt, that's an individual and that's an Old Testament concept. But what I'm gonna show you today is that it's actually a New Testament concept and we see Jesus do that exact same thing in the church in the New Testament. This idea of God pouring out his blessing and when he sees certain things in a church, him removing his blessing is a biblical concept and it's a New Testament concept and we see it in the church. And so I want you to turn with me, Revelation 2, verse one. Let me give you a little bit of context here. The book of Revelation, there at the beginning, Jesus himself is speaking to the seven churches in the, in the New Testament area. Speaking of the seven churches there in the, the early church, the New, the New Testament, and each one, what he does is he calls them out and he begins to speak to them and he tells them the things they were doing well as a church. He's gonna say, hey, here's some things you're doing great as a church. But then in each one, he points out an area in their church that they were not doing well. That, they, that, that Jesus had a problem with. And then what he does is he gives them a warning. He tells them what the consequences will be if they don't repent from what they're doing wrong as a church. Now we're gonna look at three churches this morning very quickly. And the first one is Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. So let's read it together, Revelation 2.1. This is Jesus speaking, red letters. Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. That word angel there in the Greek is same word for messenger. And so a lot of people think that he's writing or talking to the pastor of the church, the messenger of the church in Ephesus. And so the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. And Jesus says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now look at the next part there. Jesus says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now that's a key phrase. Jesus is describing himself, and he describes himself, listen, as one that walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, the seven golden lampstands were a representation of the seven churches. It was a lampstand. And Jesus said, I am walking among the churches. Jesus is saying that I'm the one whose presence is walking among and blessing the church. I'm the one that walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then in verse two, um, he starts telling them what they were doing well as a church. In verse two, he says, I know your works. It's a phrase you're gonna hear a lot. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He said, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And so Jesus starts off by telling the church at Ephesus, hey, there's some things in the church you're crushing. You're doing really well. He said, first of all, I want you to know I see your works and I see your toil. Okay, this was a church that together was on mission for God. This was a church that was doing things for Jesus. They were working for Jesus. They were toiling for Jesus. This was a church that didn't have any problem getting volunteers for the kids' ministry. I mean, this was a church that was on mission for the Lord. On top of that, they had good theology. They didn't put up with false doctrine. They didn't put up with false teachers. These people were not wasting their life. They were living on mission for Christ. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like an awesome church to me. Sounds like a church that I would want to pastor, that I wouldn't want to be a part of. But then Jesus tells them next that there is something in their church that's gone horribly wrong. Famous verse, verse four. Jesus says, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Okay, here's what the church at Ephesus had done. And it's something that is very easy for a church to fall prey to. Everybody listen. They were doing great things for Jesus. Listen, they were doing great things for Jesus. But somewhere along the way, the things they were doing for Jesus became more important to them in their hearts than their love for Jesus. So easy to do. You ever wonder why pastors fall away? That's it. Because they're doing things for Jesus, but somewhere along the way, the things they were doing for the Lord stops coming out of an overflow of their love for Jesus, and they just, they're on mission, but they walk away from their first love. This, uh, this verse, it clearly shows us for a church and for individuals that it's entirely possible for you to be a person that's diligently serving Jesus while at the same time, your love for Jesus takes a back seat. Now, I want you to watch what Jesus says to them if they don't repent and come back to the first love. Verse five, this is a haunting verse for me. Verse five, he says, remember therefore where you have fallen Repent, that means to turn, and do the works you did at first. In other words, come back to your first love and watch what Jesus says. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's a haunting verse. Because you remember Jesus said, I am the one who walks among the churches. 
I'm the one whose presence and power walks and blesses the church. And he said, if you don't come back to the place where your love for me is the most important thing in your life, Jesus said, I'm gonna remove your lampstand from his place. And so what he's saying is that church, if you don't come to the place where Jesus and your love for him is the single most important thing in your life, Jesus is saying, I am going to remove my hand of blessing. I'm gonna remove my presence from your church. That's haunting to me. His point is this. Excuse me. His point is this, that if you, if you love your mission, believer, Christian, listen, if you love your mission more than you love your Savior, your Savior will have no part of your mission. If you love your mission more than you love your Savior, your Savior will have no part of your mission. And say, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a more monumental waste of time than being a part of a church that Jesus has nothing to do with. About a thousand things I'd rather do with my life than be a part of a church that the presence of Almighty God is not showing up at. And so the first reason that churches die is because they go through the motions of ministry, but they fall out of love with Jesus Christ. So turn with me now to Revelation 3, 1. Revelation 3. Speaks to a church called Sardis. He has a different issue with them. His issue with Sardis wasn't that they stopped loving Jesus. His issue with Sardis was that they stopped serving Jesus. This was a church that was once on mission for him, but that got off mission. Okay, let's read it. Revelation 3, 1. Says to the angel, messenger of church in Sardis, write the words of him who have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus said, I know your works. There it is again. He says, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's fascinating. Jesus says, I'm, I know your works. In other words, the thing that I took away from that this week as I read all the churches. Jesus says that to every one of them. I know your works. What that told me is that Jesus cares about individual churches. Jesus is paying attention. He's watching. He, he cares about what we're doing. And Jesus tells the church in Sardis, I'm looking at your works. I see your works. And here's the thing, Sardis. You have a reputation out there for being alive. But you're not. You're not. Sagemont, this was a church that at some point in time in the past was on fire for Jesus. This was a church that sometime in the past used to serve him and they used to sacrifice for him and they were making such a difference in the world that they had a public reputation for being an on fire church. They had a public reputation for being a church that was alive, but Jesus says, look, I want you to know I've been watching your church and your church isn't alive. Like everyone thinks that it is. So what happened to this church? I mean, because obviously they started really well. They started well, but something happened. What happened? I don't know, maybe they got arrogant. Maybe like King Uzziah, they grew proud. Maybe like King David, they grew proud. Looked at all their accomplishments and got proud and got lazy and laid up on the couch. I don't know, maybe they got tired. Maybe they started off really strong, but... They, they, they got to the place where it wasn't coming out of an overflow for Jesus and they got tired and they just sort of gave up. Maybe, maybe they got 
complacent, maybe, maybe they quit caring about lost people, maybe they got so focused as a church on what made them happy that they stopped trying to reach the next generation. I don't know what it was because Jesus doesn't say. All we know is that somewhere along the way, this church that was once on fire fell asleep. They fell asleep. They took their hands off the plow. They stopped serving. They stopped sacrificing. They got off mission and they became a Christian country club. And so Jesus calls them clearly to what repentance looks like. Jesus calls them out here, Revelation 3, 2. Jesus says, here's what repentance looks like for you, Sardis. He said, wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Jesus said, strengthen what you have left and is about to die. That's, that's haunting. Jesus is saying, look, I still have more stuff for you to do. So you need to wake up, you need to get to work and strengthen what remains because you're this close to dying. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in my sight. Jesus said, you used to serve me, you used to sacrifice for me, but whatever reason you stopped, he says, wake up, get off the couch, get back in the fight because I still have work for you to do. And then he tells them what will happen if they don't do that. Revelation 3, 3, Jesus said, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Change directions. Watch what he says if they don't repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's some pretty strong language, Jesus. That's not like Sunday school flannel board, Jesus. So let me ask you guys a question. I'm speaking to Christians here. Based on what Jesus, not me, but what Jesus just said, I will come against you if you don't turn from your sleepy church. What does this say to us about how big a deal it is to Jesus that you and I don't just start our races, but we finish our races well? Sounds like it's a really big deal. Because Jesus says, look, if you guys don't wake up, if you don't get back in the fight, he didn't say he was going to remove their presence. He said he would come against them. I don't know what that means, but that does not sound like fun. Amen? And I don't want to experience it. It doesn't sound good. So the second reason the churches die. Start out great, but for whatever reason, the people stop serving. They stop sacrificing. They kind of become a Christian country club. And Jesus had a pretty big problem with that. Let's look at final church here I'm gonna look at today. Laodicea. Now here's the thing about Laodicea. This is an interesting one to me. Jesus doesn't call out Laodicea for losing their first love and he doesn't call out Laodicea for getting off mission. What he calls them out on is something that it seems Jesus had a bigger problem with than the other two churches. This is the most scathing rebuke Jesus gives of, the, of the, any, any of the seven churches. And at first you're like, Jesus, why you, what's the big deal? Why are you upset about this? But then it starts making sense. So let me give you a con, some context what was going on in Laodicea. Laodicea was a, was a city that sat on the junction between two major highways in the ancient world. And so they were the center of everything. And there was all this commerce that 
went through there, all this trade. They were the banking center of the known world at the time. And because of all that commerce and banking and all that stuff, they grew incredibly prosperous. They were so wealthy, as a matter of fact, that there was this big earthquake in um, 60 AD that leveled the entire city. And the Roman Empire came in and said, hey, we'll fund you rebuilding your city. We'll give you the money to rebuild your city. And Laodicea said, no, thanks, we got this. And they built the whole city completely by themselves from their own money. And so that is the context of what Jesus is talking about as he calls out the church in Laodicea. And again, what he's about to say to them is hands down the strongest language, the strongest rebuke that he gives any church of the seven churches. And he tells them in Revelation 3.15 what their issue is. He says, Laodicea, I know your works and you are neither cold nor hot. And you're like, Matt, what do you mean? He's about to give the strongest, most scathing rebuke of any of the church and his problem with them is that they're lukewarm. Not hot, not cold. They're just lukewarm. Jesus has an issue with that? He does. He says, I know your works and you're lukewarm. So here, I want you to hear, guys to hear this. Laodicea was a church whose, whose worship wasn't lifeless, but it wasn't full of life either. Laodicea was a church whose love for Jesus wasn't cold, but they weren't on fire for Jesus either. Laodicea was a church whose service and sacrifice was not non-existent but they weren't passionately living on mission either. And so Jesus says, look, I see your works. I see what you're doing. And those things you're doing, you as a church, y'all are lukewarm. You're okay. You're average. You're meh. And in verse 17, Jesus tells, tells them why they grew lukewarm. Again, this is Jesus speaking, Revelation 3:17. He says, you look warm, and then he tells them why. Verse 17, he says, for you say, I am rich, and I've prospered, and I need nothing. So what did Jesus just say was the reason that this church was just average. It was just lukewarm. It was prosperity. It was success. It was like Uzziah. They got successful. Now, what's fascinating to me is this, is that they got rich, they got prosperous, and that did not, everybody look at me. Their prosperity did not cause them to walk away from Jesus. Their prosperity caused them to be distracted to the point that they weren't on fire for Jesus anymore. Their prosperity didn't cause them to walk away. Their prosperity caused them to be lukewarm. I like to uh, call this church the, the Rocky Three Church. Now, how many of y'all have seen Rocky Three? I'm just curious, a little poll here. Okay, several of you. How many of y'all have not seen Rocky Three? All right, that's the last Rocky illustration I'm ever doing in my life. All right, they teach you a seminary, never do an illustration over 20 years old, and I just saw why. Um, so Rocky is a, is, a, is a movie about a boxer from Philadelphia named Rocky Balboa. Grows up in the streets of Philadelphia. He is poor, and he's a nobody, and that dude is hungry, man. He is driven he wants the heavyweight championship of the world really, really badly. He is a driven 
dude. And so he trains and he trains and he works and he scratches and he claws. And finally, finally, one day he gets a shot at the title. And sure enough, he wins and he beats Apollo Creed and becomes a heavyweight champion of the world. Well, after he won, he woke up one day and life was easy. He didn't live in a poor neighborhood anymore. He, he was living in a big old fat mansion. He um, wasn't poor, he was rich. Didn't have to work hard because he'd already achieved everything he was ever going after. Life was easy, life was good, driving a Ferrari. He, he spent the majority of his time not training to get better, but he spent the majority of, of his time doing commercials making more money, and this challenger comes along in Rocky Three named Clubber Lang. It was Mr. T for you old people um, that have been around a long time. He killed that role, by the way, if you've never seen it. Clubber Lang comes along, and Clubber Lang was still hungry. He was still driven. He wanted the title, and so he challenges Rocky Balboa. And so Clubber Lang just strives and works and he trains and trains and trains and trains because he wants it so bad. And Rocky's already got the title. He thinks he's just going to take Clubber Lang out. And so he doesn't really, he just kind of dials it in, about halfway does it, kind of lukewarm kind of training. Well, they ended up fighting and Clubber just beats the mess out of him. And Rocky loses the title. Rocky gets all depressed, kind of goes away, evaluating his life and the former champion, Apollo Creed, finds Rocky right in the middle of his depression and walks up to him and he said, Rocky, I want to tell you why you lost the title. He said, the reason you lost the title is because you lost the eye of the tiger, man. You lost the eye of the tiger. Y'all remember that old 80s song, Eye of the Tiger? Go listen to it on the way home. He said, you lost the eye of the tiger, man. He said, look at all this, this money. Look at this big house. Look at the Ferraris. Look at all this stuff. He said, you got all this money and fame and success, and you lost the drive that got you here. You lost the eye of the tiger, man. He said, if you want to be great, you got to get back the eye of the tiger. That's what's going on here. Laodicea had lost the eye of the tiger. And it's a story that reminds me of what Jesus said about the parable of the sower. I want to read it to you real quick. Parable of the sower. Don't miss this. The parable of the sower was Jesus describing how different people would receive the word of God. Jesus said the word of God's kind of like seed, it goes out. And different people are gonna receive the word of God in different ways. And then Laodicea reminds me of one of the groups of people and how they receive the word of God. Don't turn there, listen, Mark 4.18, Jesus is speaking. He said the others, this group of people, are the ones sown, that's the word of God, Others are sown among thorns. So there's gonna be a group of people that when they hear the word of God, it's like the seed fell into thorns. He says, listen, he says, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I want you to listen really clearly what Jesus just said. They said there's this, he describes this group of people that was hearing the word of God and they were receiving it. But because of their desire for other things, because they were so interested in the stuff of the world, they, they, they got to a place where even though they were hearing the word of God, that 
That word of God did not bear fruit in their lives. This was a group of people that were hearers of the word. They were coming to church. They were attending Bible studies. But because their heart wanted so many other things, although they were hearers of the word, they were not doers of the word. They became unfruitful. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It was this church, Laodicea, it was this people. They lost out of the tiger. They grew lukewarm. And again, Jesus gives the harshest and most scathing rebuke of any of the seven churches. Watch the rebuke he gives them. Revelation 3.16. This might be the hardest thing Jesus says in the whole Bible, this whole ministry, when he's rebuking Laodicea for their lukewarmness. She said, verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that's a famous verse. If you've spent any time in church, you've heard that verse before. Because you're lukewarm, you're either hot nor cold, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. But I learned something this week that I've never heard before, never studied before. That word spit is a poor translation in the English. Jesus says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The word spit is the Greek word emeho. And when you study it, it's crystal clear. It's not a word that means to spit. It's a word that means to vomit. It is the word for vomit. I'm not sure why they did spit. And so what we see here, guys, is that Some churches make Jesus weep. Some churches make Jesus frustrated. And some churches make Jesus want to throw up. Let that sink in. Lukewarm churches make Jesus sick. Why? Why not the harshest rebuke for the other churches. One of the churches was in struggling with sexual sin. It's a big deal. Jesus gives this church a harder rebuke. Why does Jesus give such a harsh rebuke for a lukewarm church? I'm convinced it's this reason. And if you don't hear anything I say, I want you to hear this. The reason Jesus gives such a harsh rebuke for a lukewarm church is because when a lost world looks at a lukewarm, okay, meh kind of church, it makes the world think we serve a lukewarm, okay, meh kind of God. Lukewarm churches paint a horrible picture of God. Because I'm gonna tell you something, Sagemont. Our God is not lukewarm. He's an all-consuming fire, actually. And our God's not okay, He is the Lord most high. And our God is not meh. He is the alpha and he's the omega. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's the first and he's the last. He's our rock and he is our redeemer. He's our advocate and he is our mediator. He's the bread of life and he's the everlasting light. He's our hope. He's our healer. He's our helper. He's our hiding place. And I could keep going for a really long time because our God is a lot of things. But okay, average, lukewarm, meh. Those aren't one of them. And so when lukewarm churches offer lukewarm worship 
and lukewarm service. Not only does it say to a lost world, we serve a lukewarm average God, but here's what else it does. Lukewarm churches say to God, God, you are not worthy of my best. You're only worthy of halfway service. You're only worthy of halfway worship, God. You're really only worthy for halfway sacrifice. And I'm convinced that that's why it doesn't make him sad. He said it makes him sick. So I'm gonna land the plane today with a question. If Jesus were speaking to Sagemont Church, what do you think he'd say? I don't know. I don't know. I know there's some things we do really well as a church. As a matter of fact, there's things we do as a church I think we do as well as anybody in the country. But at the same time, I have zero doubt there's things we need to change that Jesus would call out on us. And so maybe a better question might be, would be this. Like, what, what would Jesus say to you? What would Jesus say to you? If this church were made up of people that all looked exactly like you, which one of those three churches would, would best describe you? Ephesus, Sardis, Laodicea. I'll start, I'll go first. For me, I think the Lord, there have been times in my life where the Lord could look at me and say, Matt, you, you look a lot like Ephesus. And that's the church that I think best represents me. I toil diligently for Jesus. I live every day of my life as best as I can on mission for him. I fight for sound doctrine myself and for you and for this church. But I'm telling you guys, there have been multiple times in my life where if you were to take a look into my heart, the stuff I was doing for Jesus had become more important to me than my love for Jesus. I was doing all these things for the Lord, but if you looked at, at my heart, my heart was far from him. For some of you, Sagemont were full of people like you. This, this church would look like Sardis because there was a time in your life and your past when you were on fire for the Lord. There was a time in your past where you served the Lord. There was a time in your past that you would be willing to make any sacrifice for him, but for some reason you took your hands off the plow, you stopped serving, you stopped sacrificing, you stopped living on mission for him. For some of you, church full of people like you, we'd look like Laodicea. See, your heart hadn't grown cold for God, but it's not on fire for him either. You serve him, but it's like you're offering a tip to God as you pursue about 15 other things with a lot more passion. You come to work, or come rather to church, and you worship him, but you walk out the doors and you don't live a lifestyle of worship. And all that's happening because of the cares of the world, because of the deceitfulness of riches, and all the desire for other things have caused that lukewarmness in your life. So I'm almost done. Hang with me. Listen, if you're here today and you are a believer, if you're here and you're a Christian, 
and your own walk looks like one of those three churches, I want you to watch what Jesus says next. He gives sort of one final warning. It's a warning of good news and bad news, of bad news and good news. Here it is, Revelation 3.19. It's for everybody, no matter where you are. Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, hey guys, I want you to know, churches, that those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. So regardless of where you are, Jesus says this kind of final warning that's bad news and it's good news at the same time. Because what Jesus is saying is that if you're in a place where where you're not supposed to be, if you're lukewarm, if you're off mission, if, if your heart is far from him, Jesus said, I need you to turn and I need you to repent because I am gonna love and I'm gonna I'm gonna reprove and I'm gonna discipline my children. And I'm gonna tell you something, what Jesus just said is that if you're in that place, he loves you way too much to let you stay in that place. He's gonna He's gonna complete the good work he began in you until the day of Christ. And so the call is to repent and do it zealously. For those of you that are like me, Ephesus, repentance means you come back to your first love. You remember remember that time? Nobody had to drag you to church. You didn't have to make yourself have a quiet time. You didn't have to remind yourself to pray because you were in love with Jesus. Jesus said, come on back, I miss you. Come on back. Those of you that look like Sardis, repentance means, means crying out loud, wake up. Get off the couch. Get in the fight. It means caring more about people knowing Jesus than you care about your personal preferences. It means putting your hand back on the plow and saying, God, with whatever time I have left, God, pour me out as a drink offering to the last drop, to the final day for you. And for those of you who look like Laodicea, repentance for you means repenting of the lukewarmness of your worship. It means repenting of the lukewarmness of your service and repenting of the lukewarmness of your sacrifice. And it really means more than anything. You looking at Jesus and say, Jesus, the reason I'm doing that is not because I'm maybe convicted in the sermon, but the reason that I'm gonna go all in is because Jesus, you are worthy of my everything. You're worthy of more than I've been given you. And if you'll do that, if we'll do that, then I want you to watch, last verse, what Jesus says he'll do in return. And this is a beautiful thing, Revelation 3.20. If we'll turn and do what he's calling us to do, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and I will eat with him and he with me. That is maybe the most misinterpreted, misunderstood verses in the whole Bible because Revelation 3.20 is not talking about individual salvation. He is talking to the church. And he's saying, church, I am knocking on your door. If you will open the door, I will come in and I will eat with you and I will fellowship with you and I will pour out my presence and I will pour out my blessing and I will blow your mind with my presence if you'll just open the door. I don't know about you, Sagemont, but here's what I found in my life. There is nothing that compares to the presence of Jesus Christ. Nothing. If you've ever been in the tangible manifest presence of Almighty God, there's nothing that compares to it. 
And so if that doesn't, Revelation 3.20 does not motivate you that he will come in and he will eat with us and fellowship with us and pour out his blessing. If that is not what you want, if that doesn't motivate you, you're in the wrong church. There's nothing better than the presence of God. And so I will not stop. We will not stop. I will not be deterred. We will not be deterred by the criticism of man or the attack of the enemy until we are the church that Jesus Christ wants us to be. Not me, not you, but what Jesus Christ wants us to be.